right, good morning, Timberline family. For those of you who I have not had the honor of meeting yet, my name is Ozan Farron. I'm one of the elders here at Timberline, and I have the wonderful honor and privilege of introducing to you our guest preacher this morning. I had an opportunity to meet with Marcus and Kahori last night over supper with our family, and they... Uh, they must have kids or lots of grandkids or something because they handle their kids like, like a boss. <laughs> so it was pretty amazing. And, and you all know this is months ago now that uh, Pastor uh, Chris Gorman stepped down as the regional minister of the NAB Northwest. We're part of the North American Baptist Conference here at Timberline. And more specifically, we're in the Northwest region. And so there is a, a collaboration of churches in the Northwest that come together very regularly. And there's a lot of participation. In fact, I wouldn't be here at Timberline if it weren't for the NAB because I came from a church in Puyallup and was able to, by God's grace, come and serve here at Timberline because of that association. And so um, our brother Marcus Elmer will be preaching the message this morning. He is the, the interim regional minister of the Northwest. So he's He's sort of filling in for Chris Gorman as they find a more permanent solution. And he's got a heart for Jesus. He's got a heart for God. He's got a heart for God's people. And I'm just so excited to have him here this morning. So will you join me in giving him a warm welcome as he presents the glorious Christ. And before I start my thoughts off from God's word, I just want to say thank you to this whole wonderful church, Timberline. Um, blessings on you. I got to spend a couple of weeks um, together with Pastor Nick uh, about a month, what, two months ago. He and I and Pastor Pavel from Tacoma went to Moldova together and got to um, share with them uh, some help, some support, and talk about Jesus in Moldova as the Moldovan churches were taking care of some of the Ukrainian refugees. And what a great time we had together, laughing. If you're with Nick, you're going to laugh, right? And he's a great guy, and Pastor Pavel. And I'm told you guys raised quite a bit of money to help us on that adventure. And uh, I think Pastor Nick was saying something about a chili contest that you guys had. Is that right? A chili and pie? Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for doing that, uh, for eating your way to generosity. Um, cause, because of this church, we were able to give a lot uh, to those churches in Moldova. So, And I just want to say, too, how much I appreciate Pastor Nick. He is an awesome pastor. If I could clone Nick and put him in every church, what a great thing, right? I mean, he, you have a wonderful pastor here at Timberline. So I uh, hope he's having a great time on a sabbatical, and that gives me an opportunity to speak with you this morning. We're going to be in uh, Colossians chapter 1, and guess what? I'm going to talk about Jesus and uh, that's what I like to do. And so today we're talking about the glorious Christ. In James chapter 2, it, it calls him the glorious Christ. And so that's where we get that phrase, glorious Christ. And then this morning in Colossians chapter 1, if you'll turn there, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we learn about the divine nature of Jesus and to never forget that Jesus is supreme and that Jesus is, in fact, God. Amen? Amen? And he's divine. And so we're going to learn all about that this morning. Please stand with me as I read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 from God's holy word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these amazing words about Jesus in this hymn of praise, recorded for us by the Apostle Paul, Lord, given to him by your Holy Spirit, written down as your written word for eternity, God. We thank you for it. We love you for it. We ask that you would stir our hearts, awaken our souls, as we sang this morning, to who you are, and may it make a difference in our lives, Lord, that we would honor the glorious Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. There lingers, as you, I'm sure, are well aware, there lingers in our modern American culture a completely incorrect and false understanding of who Jesus is, that he is simply a good man or maybe a prophet or a good teacher, but not God, okay? Uh, When was the last time you heard someone say, oh, Jesus, he's just a crazy guy, right? No, they don't say that. They say things like, oh, Jesus, yeah, he's a great teacher. I could learn a lot from Jesus. In fact, he might have been a prophet. I don't know. But you ask that person, do you believe that Jesus is divine or uh, a representation of the divine? And they would say, no, I don't believe that. He's just a good guy. You could learn a lot from him. Well, the same type of false understanding was taking place in 61 AD when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Colossian church. And so he had to write very clearly, very clearly, that Jesus, in many ways, that Jesus, we can see, is divine. What is really ironic, of course, is that then and now, people would even think that Jesus is good, but not God. That Jesus is good, but not God. It's a, it's a totally false understanding. Because Jesus himself self-proclaimed that he was God. And if he wasn't God, then he's not good, you see. In fact, we find things like this written in God's Word that Jesus said about himself. John fourteen nine, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Right? Jesus said that. John 10:30 I and the Father are one. Okay? John 10 I'm sorry, the first one was John 14:9. That was John 10:30. Then John 8:58 Jesus said I tell you the truth before Abraham was born I am. These are all these are all self-statements of divinity. Yes, indeed, Jesus claimed to be God. And so to say that he was just a good man who said kind things but not God is to totally miss the point. I have that famous C.S. Lewis quote on the back of your sermon outlines, which reads in part like this, 
Well, maybe you don't have it. You don't have the back of my sermon outline, do you, in there? Well, just look. Do I have it up there? No. Just listen. How about that? Just listen. (laughs) C.S. Lewis wrote this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. In other words, Lewis is saying, Jesus himself claimed to be God, and so you can't say that he was a good moral teacher and not God at the same time. Are you with me? Raise your hand if you're with me. Okay? You can't say that. It's one or the other. And I'm saying this morning, let's look. Yes, Jesus is divine. And he did say that about himself, and this is what Paul is saying now about him. Let's look at the first truth statement in verse 15a. He is the image of the invisible God. Say that with me. He is the image of the invisible God. That's it. Paul says right at the beginning, that which was invisible has been made visible. The invisible God has now been made so that you can see him. Jesus is the manifestation and the revelation of invisible God. Case closed. One sentence from Paul, and the argument is over. Do you think the Bible says that Jesus is God? There it is, that one phrase. But Paul, of course, doesn't stop with the one phrase. He goes on in his argumentation, as he always does, and he gives us uh, idea after idea after idea to show us that indeed Jesus is divine. Well, in fact, other scriptures declare it as well. For instance, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. That's the same idea as Colossians chapter 1 exactly. In fact, we sang that phrase this morning in the very first song that we sang, the radiance of the Father. And by the way, worship team, thank you for including that song, Glorious Christ, today. The radiance of the Father is a phrase that talks about Jesus. In fact, let's say these words this morning together, shall we? The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. That's Jesus. Another verse, Philippians 2, 5, and 6. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature... Say it with me. God. There it is. It's all over the New Testament. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's talking about Jesus. And my personal favorite, John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, that's Jesus, God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Does the New Testament say that Jesus is God? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All throughout. And we saw it in Jesus' ministry, didn't we? His divinity, right? He rebuked the winds and the sea. He changed water into wine, right? He made the fig tree wither, etc., etc. Power over nature. Starting with this next phrase, let's talk about his divinity. Verse 15b uh, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Notice that the word firstborn in the English. 
we think of the oldest child. The firstborn is the oldest child among many children. That's what when you think of when we think of the, the word firstborn. But in, in Paul's day, uh, in the Greek, the force of that word is much different. It actually included the idea of preeminent in rank or the one with authority, right? Yes, it came from the idea of the oldest child in the family, but then the word morphed into including the meaning, the one with the highest rank or the one with all of the authority, which makes sense here. Notice it says firstborn over creation. It doesn't say firstborn in the family. It says firstborn, that is, have authority over creation. Therefore, Jesus, having authority over creation, is divine because the only one who can have authority over creation is God, right? So to say he is the firstborn over creation is just another way for Paul to say he's divine. In fact, he's the divine creator. He's the divine creator. Look at verse 16a, for by him all things were created. That should be shocking to you. He's trying to shock us a little bit. And he's saying, look, he is so God, he is so much God that he actually is the creator. Jesus is, right? Now, why is that important? Because the false teachers in, that were kind of infiltrating the church in Colossae, the false teachers had been saying things like, well, you know, we think that Jesus is himself a created being. That maybe he was created like the angels were created. And so Paul, in full force here, says, no, 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 that's not right. He wasn't a created being. In fact, Jesus created everything himself. He's divine, right? Well, you say, I thought, I thought God the Father created everything, right? Genesis chapter 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's God the Father, right? Yes. But then look at Job 33, 4. It says, the Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me light, life. And so here we see that the Spirit, the divine Spirit of God, is the Creator. Right? And then, of course, back to John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. Now watch this. Through Him all things were made, through Jesus. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. That's Jesus. He's the Creator. And so, what we see is we see all three persons were involved in creation, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're one, and they created. He created, you see, three and one. And so, when Paul is using this argument that Jesus is the creator, what's he trying to do? He's trying to show us that Jesus is divine and is the creator God himself, right? And then Paul says, verse 16b, he created things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. This is a very important line. Why did Paul say that? Why did he say this sentence? Why the two opposites of visible and invisible on heaven, in heaven and on earth? Because once again of the false teachers in their church. Because they were saying that Jesus was a created being. And Paul says, no, he wasn't a created being. In fact, um, he created even the invisible things. That's the point when he says visible and invisible, right? He's making a point, and the point is that he even created the angels. He even created any spirit in the spirit world, okay? And so, whether, and then he goes on and says, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, and that's connected to the previous 
the previous phrase. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. He's talking about, he's talking about levels of angelic beings. We surmise. That's our best understanding of that phrase. He's not talking about political powers here. He's talking about things that are invisible. And his point is that Jesus created all of them, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities in the spirit realm. That's his point. Amen. That's right. Thank you. And then he goes on and says, all things, summary statement, all things were created by him and for him. And so, all creation, visible and invisible, exalts Jesus. Amen? I love to think about science. A little rabbit trail here. I love to read about the intricacies of our universe and see in greater detail what Jesus has created for us. There's an outstanding video produced some years ago called Unlocking the Mysteries of Life. Write that down if you want, Unlocking the Mysteries of Life. It's a video, by the way, I checked it out. You can, still, you can see it for free online. Just type in uh, into YouTube or, or into Google, Unlocking the Mysteries of Life. I think it's an hour, an hour and a half long video. And it's a collection of elite scientists who came together, not necessarily all Christians, and they came together and they looked at the microscopic level of cells. And they were asking themselves the question, how, how did this come to be? And what's this like? And what they discovered um, after uh, quite some time of investigating together and collaborating together is that they came out with some statements saying that if you look at the microscopic level of cells, there's no way in which you can see that or say that that happened by chance. That there must have been an intelligent designer. This was a group of elite scientists. You watch that video. It's really convincing. I have a quote from, the, uh, from this video uh, by scientist Michael Behe, and he says, the result of the cumulative efforts to investigate the cell, to investigate life at the molecular level, is a loud, clear, piercing cry of design. The result is so unambiguous and so significant that it must be ranked as one of the greatest achievements in the history of science. The observation of the intelligent design of life is, an, is as momentous as the observation that the earth goes around the sun. There was, my friends, an intelligent designer who created this universe, and his name is Jesus. Creation points to a creator in its design, as Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Don't you love that verse? Let's say it together, shall we? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Every time you look at a beautiful scenery, think, thank you, God. Think, thank you, Jesus. And we sang about it this morning in the very first song that we sang, The Glorious Christ, when we sang this. The radiance of the Father. Who's that? Who's that? Jesus. The radiance of the Father. It's that Hebrews 1-3 verse. The radiance of the Father, Jesus, before the dawn of time, Jesus, you spoke and all creation came to be. The molecules and planets reveal your great design and everyone was made so we could see. So we could see, say it with me, you are the glorious Christ. 
Beautiful words. You sing those. That's a great song. Because the purpose of creation is to show the glory of Christ. So I'm going to ask you this this morning. How big is your view of Jesus in your mind? In your mind's eye. How big is your view of Jesus? Because it's got to be bigger. Let's get it bigger. That's why we're doing this this morning. Here's a picture I took at Taggart Lake at the base of the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. It's showing up here. Yeah, you can kind of see it there. Just a beautiful picture. I think it's the best picture I've ever taken in my life. <laughs> but no pride to me. It all goes to Jesus because we look at a picture like that and we think, what? We either think, wow, that's beautiful. Or sometimes in our pride we think, wow, didn't I take a great picture? <laughs> right? But that's not the point. The point is, right, that Jesus made that. That's the point. Because all creation is supposed to point to Jesus, the glorious Christ. And so when you see a beautiful picture, think that. Think, Jesus, you made that. Thank you so much. God, you made that. Thank you so much. It's a great conversation starter, too. When you show, someone shows you a picture and, 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 and you think, and you say, God, thank you so much. Isn't that great what God did in making that? That part of creation. Paul then speaks of Jesus' divine attribute of sustainer. So he's talking about creation, and then he says, and Jesus sustains all of creation. This is 17a. He is, Jesus is, before all things, so that establishes his eternality, uh, eternity past. He was before all things, all right? And then verse 17, and in him all things hold together. And we just kind of read through that, da, 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 da. and in him all things hold together. Stop. Paul's like, stop. You need to understand something. In Jesus, everything holds together. He's the sustainer. And without Jesus, it all falls apart. Okay? Put that into your mind. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if Jesus doesn't do his work of sustenance of sustaining the creation, it will all fall apart. I do, but we have to keep reminding ourselves of these things, right? That every single atom in this universe, right? Uh, every, every atom in a cell at the microscopic level holds together because of Jesus. So that's the smallness end. And when the, then the bigness end, right? Consider the vastness of the universe. The sun has a diameter of 864,000 miles, Okay? It's huge, right? That's a hundred times the diameter of the earth. Maybe you can wrap your mind around the size of the earth. But now, multiply that by a hundred times. The sun is a hundred times wider than the earth. Now, you take that into cubic form, and you could fit 1.3 million earths into the sun. Now, you might not believe me on that. Go do your own research. It's true. You could put 1.3 million earths into the sun, okay? So that's staggering. You can't hardly wrap your mind around that. But now consider that in our Milky Way galaxy, there are billions of stars like our sun. Oh, my goodness. How can that be? Now, consider one more thing, that in the universe... There are millions of galaxies, like our Milky Way galaxy, which includes billions of stars like our sun. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's staggering. And in fact, I love science, thought of correctly, right now, we're getting images back 
from the new Webb telescope, aren't we? It's fantastic. Because what are scientists learning? How big and how big and how big our universe really is, even more than they thought before. And Jesus holds it all together. Amen? That's the thing. Blow your mind with the size of the universe and then couple that with this truth in Colossians 1. Jesus holds it all together. And without Jesus, it all falls apart. Now, scientists can help us explain it or, or describe it, but Jesus holds it all together because Jesus made it all. Now, so, I'm pushing you on your concept of Jesus and your belief in how big Jesus is as the divine, as God. Grow. Stretch. Remind yourself from Scripture. Let Scripture expand your understanding of who Jesus is. And now watch, Paul does something really uh, kind of fascinating here. He's talking about the universe and, and, and Jesus is the creator and sustainer and all that. And all of a sudden, he takes this right-hand turn. And suddenly, he talks about Jesus as the head of the church, which is really small in a way in comparison to the universe. But this is really important for us because we don't want to get ourselves so wrapped up in the big things that we forget about the, the intimate things, the things around our church and the church universal. And he teaches us that Jesus is the divine head of the church. Verse 18a, and he is the head of the body, the church. I love the church, by the way. I love to, to, to push churches to be better, to push churches and encourage churches to be the best that they can be because we glorify Christ when we are a better church. The folks in the Colossian church needed to hear this, that Jesus is the head that he's the brains of the whole thing, that he's over all of it. He's the authority. Because everything else in our church pales in comparison to the importance of Jesus as that. And it helps us all. It keeps everything in perspective, right? It makes pastors bow low before Jesus in humility. I love that. It makes elders who serve Christ in the church serve him with reverence and love to remember that Jesus is the head. I'm not the head. Pastor Nick's not the head. Your elders aren't the head. Jesus is the head. So it humbles all of us, number one, right? And then also, whoever we are serving in the church, it reminds us that we got that service because of Jesus, right? Because he gifts the people in the church, right? By his gifting, is any person blessed with the ability to speak or teach or lead or serve or sing or build or or whatever or help or support? in front, behind the scenes, in the church, it's all because of Jesus, right? And if we all remember that, we all stay humble and we all get along. Jesus is the head. Super important for us to remember. And Jesus is the divine source of the church. That's what verse 18b means when it says, He is the beginning. The word beginning there in the Greek is arche, which means the source or the starter of something. And so in context, I believe it means he's the source of the church. Of course, he's the source of everything. 
But we're done talking about the creation. Now we've moved on to talking about the church. And so when it says that Jesus is the beginning, I believe in context what it means is he's the beginning of the church. Right? That's why he gets to be the head because he made it all. He made all of us. He gifted all of us. And so we see, for instance, in a verse like Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 where it says, For God chose us in Jesus. I love that. In Jesus. He, Paul's always exalting Jesus. For God chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Jesus is sovereign. He chose all of us. And there's the source of the church. And so Jesus gets to be the head over us. This is what Paul is saying. He's reminding them. He's reminding us. Just calm down. Be humble. Jesus chose all you guys anyway. Isn't any of you more better than the others? Really is what he's saying because Jesus is the head. So let's just get together and let's have a good time together and all remember and all worship Jesus. Amen? Amen. And we're going to do that, by the way, at the end when we take communion. We're going to be in unity together worshiping Jesus, which I believe is one of the great reasons that we do communion together. So then he moves on, Paul does, and he says, and he teaches us that Jesus is also divine by showing us his resurrection. He is the divine resurrection. Super important when we talk about Jesus. We often talk about his power through resurrection. Shows his divinity. It says here, and the firstborn from among the dead. And the firstborn from among... Say that with me. And the firstborn from among the dead. That's resurrection. That's the power of Jesus' resurrection. And when I think about Jesus' resurrection as it relates to us, I think about two things. I think about the pattern of resurrection and the power of resurrection. And we see the pattern of resurrection in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him uh, to bring everything under His control will transform, here it is, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Amen. Wow. So that when we get resurrected, we see Jesus was the pattern for our resurrection, right? So his, he resurrected from the dead into a spiritual body, right? We could see it, we could touch it, and yet it was spiritual in some way. He could walk through walls, okay? That's the pattern so that when we get resurrected on the day of resurrection, on the day of Jesus Christ, our bodies will be the same as Jesus. That's the pattern of resurrection. And then power, we find the power of resurrection in Romans 8, 11, where it says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Life to you right now in your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Okay? That's the power of Jesus' resurrection in us. That is now we have resurrection power as believers and as as repentant believers in Jesus Christ, right? Power to do things like avoid sin. Power to do things like have peace in our hearts. Power to do things like serve the church, which God has commanded us to do. That kind of power. I'm not talking about crazy, weird, odd, mystical power. I'm talking about the things that God has called us to do. Now we have the power to do that. Why? Because of Jesus' resurrection power living within us through his spirit, just as it says in Romans 8.11. Amen? Amen? Okay, so Jesus' resurrection power shows us the pattern of resurrection and the power of resurrection. By the way, that's a whole other sermon. 
And so because of that, our job is to praise the resurrected Jesus. And when we praise the resurrected Jesus, right, uh, God, inhabits, God inhabits our praises. And so when we praise Him, then He does something new and fresh in our hearts, which is why we, we meet together on Sunday mornings and we sing praises and we learn from Him in His Word, right? Because when we do that, when we actually sing, God inhabits the praises of His people and He makes it fresh for us again. And it reminds us of Jesus' divine preeminence, which is the next verse, 18d, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Say that with me. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's Jesus. Let's do things that help remind us that Jesus is preeminent. That's part of our worship. You see, Paul's argument here is this kind of overflowing cascading flow of superlatives about Jesus, right? And it all ends with this, so that he might have the supremacy in our hearts and our minds. He already has the supremacy, right? He already has it. But the goal here is that, he, that, that we would see Jesus as supreme. We would see Jesus as preeminent. How big is Jesus in your mind? That's the point. Because no one is better. Nothing is greater. No created thing in all the earth is above Jesus, above the glorious Christ. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 9 and 11, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I hope you love Jesus. And I hope your view of Jesus is growing more and more all the time, and especially as we go to His Word, and we read these things in His Word, and, and suddenly it just shocks us back into, into remembering how good Jesus is. You may have gotten distracted a little bit this week. Let's get undistracted right now and just make Jesus bigger in our minds. The chorus of the song, Glorious Christ, goes like this, you are the glorious Christ, the greatest of all delights. Your power is unequaled, your love beyond all heights, no greater sacrifice than when you lay down your life. We join the song of angels who praise you day and night. Say it with me, glorious Christ. Praise God. How big is Jesus in your heart? My friends, let me tell you about some of the things I love in this life. Well, I love my wife, for sure, and I love my two daughters, they're awesome. They're wonderful. And I also love, I love to go hiking. I love the outdoors. We're camping family. We're hiking family. I love to, um, I love to collect things. I'm a collector. Uh, I, love, I love the money in my bank account. Honest, okay? It makes me feel too secure to have money in my bank account. I love the things I own. I love my house. Maybe you do too. I love my car just because it, you know, makes my life uh, happy and pleasurable and all that. I have so many things that I love in this earth. And I get to, God's blessed us with these things, right, in, in, in our lives for 50, 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years, right? We get to have these things. Let me tell you something. All of those things are just going to burn up, right? They're all going to just be gone. Don't love them too much. Love this, Jesus Christ, right? He's your greatest delight. And you think, how could that be? Like, 
like, what does that mean that Jesus is my greatest delight? Because I, I mean, I, lo- I love to go to Dutch Bros. I, listen, we were at a hotel this, this morning, and there's the Dutch Bros right next door. There's a line that's like 20 cars long going to Dutch Bros. Because people love Dutch Bros so much. I love my coffee, right? Don't love it too much. So what does it mean to have Jesus as your greatest delight? Sometimes we have to go back to scriptures like this and remind ourselves what it is about Jesus that we should love so much. And I'm telling you, he's the sustainer of the universe. And if Jesus stops sustaining this universe, we're nothing. Think about that. And then you'll delight in Jesus because the truth has to be made bigger in your mind. So I have all of these loves in my life, but let me not love them too much. Because in Jesus is divine fullness. Now watch this. This is super important. In Jesus is divine fullness. For God was pleased to have all his fullness, say that word fullness, fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. Now why did Paul use the word fullness? In fact, we rarely see this word ever else used in the New Testament. It's just here. Why did Paul just kind of pluck that word out of the air and stick it into that sentence? Here's why. Super important. Because the false teachers were using that word. The Gnostic false teachers in the church of Colossae had said this. Hey, everyone, there's all kinds of ways to have fullness. There's all kinds of spirits going around in this universe. And they were, they were called emanations. And you just have to go figure out a way to find those spirits and you'll experience a fullness here and a fullness here and a fullness here and it'll really help your life. Does that sound familiar? Uh-huh, right? It's all kind of Eastern mysticism kind of stuff is what it was. And it was an elitist thing, right? Gnosticism was those who were in the know. It comes from the Greek word gnosis. And what they were saying to everyone is, you've got to follow us and you've got to figure out how to get in the know about achieving and grasping onto these emanations and these fullnesses, okay? Are you with me? And so Paul comes in and he says, no. He says, all of God's fullness is found in Jesus. And so it's super important that Paul used that word fullness. In fact, I want us to say it again. Let's recite this part of the, the verse. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Don't go looking for your fullness in other mystical experiences. Go to God's Word and read it and find the fullness of who Jesus is in God's Word and exalt His name from it, and then you will experience that fullness that only Jesus can give you. And He deserves my praise, and He deserves my submission. Jesus is the one who tells me what to do, and I'll listen and I will obey. For me, this all started in 1978, which was a very long time ago, when I was 14 years old, and I did not grow up in a home that was following Jesus at that time, and so I didn't know anything about church or anything about the cross. I was 14 years old, and I didn't know anything about the cross in America, because that's how America is going. Even 14-year-olds oftentimes don't know Well, even adults oftentimes don't know what the meaning of the cross is. 
And then some very missionally-minded, loving people invited me to church. And they were just a group of simple high school students who loved Jesus. And they invited me to this church youth group, as did uh, my wife got invited to this same youth, church youth group as well. Just a simple thing. But we showed up, and sure, there were fun and games, and we were having a good time and building friendships and enjoying fun things. And in the midst of that, the very wise youth pastor was teaching the Bible very clearly and very strategically and carefully, helping us to understand who the real Jesus is and helping us to understand the true gospel message, which is this, that God created us. God created me. And since God created me, he gets to tell me what to do. He designed me in such a way that he's the best. He's the best one to tell me how to live. In fact, he summarized that for us in the Old Testament, in his moral laws, the Ten Commandments. Don't ever forget those. They're still very important to us. And as we measure our lives up against God's moral law in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, we find that we don't live up, that we fail. We can't do those things as God has designed us to do. And so because of that, we're separated from God because God's told us to do it. He's designed it. He's created us, and we can't, and we can't measure up. But then he also comes along and he says, you know what? You can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Jesus came later. Now we understand. He came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And if we believe that, we're justified. And I heard that message as a 14-year-old. I didn't, no one had ever told me that before. My parents hadn't told me that clearly before, right? No relative had told me that clearly. No other adult had ever told, told me that clearly. Where were all the people that were supposed to be telling me that? Finally, someone, when I was 14 years old, told me, praise God, because that person and those group of, of youth were on mission. Sounds big, doesn't it? On mission, Right? It is big, but it's also very simple, just like we ought to be on mission. That is, always sharing with our friends and family, always teaching young people about what the cross means. It's a simple thing, but, you know, we forget to do it, but it's so, so very important. And so because of that experience that I had as a 14-year-old, I fell in love with the church, who is Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, right? I fell in love with things like youth groups who reach out children's ministries who reach out, because that's how I was changed. I was changed through Jesus Christ, through his church. And that's one of the reasons I'm so thankful right now for Timberline Baptist Church, because you, you guys are doing that in wonderful, creative, simple ways. You're being a witness for Christ. Amen? Amen. And we're exalting Jesus here at Timberline. Last point, Jesus became my divine reconciliation, as I've shared when I was 14 years old. Look at verse 20. It says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He's reconciling to himself all things through Jesus' blood on the cross. And guess what? He reconciled me. And I'm so glad for that. It makes Jesus bigger in my mind, that he loved me that much, that he reconciled me to God. My friends, in these six short verses, Paul is trying to help us see the supremacy of Christ. He's trying to help us see that nothing is more important than to recognize the divine nature of Christ come to this earth, and so that now we can henceforth worship and exalt His name as the one and only Savior. 
the glorious Christ. Don't you just want to worship Jesus more after looking at a text like this? I do. And I'm so glad that you've come along with me to be stirred in your hearts to hear the voice of God from His Word, the Bible. I always say this. If you want to hear the voice of God, do you want to hear the voice of God? If you want to hear the voice of God, read His Word. Okay. If you want to hear the voice of God out loud, which I know you do too, read the Word out loud. You see, we're looking for a mystical experience We're looking for an individual in America. We're looking for an individualized kind of mystical, subjective experience, voice, whatever. It's right here in the Bible, the objective voice of God. When we read scriptures like this, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, read it, understand it, and be moved in your heart because God is teaching you and training you. I implore you to keep your hearts and your minds in God's word on a daily basis. Read it every day. I love the words of English Puritan pastor John Owen, who wrote over 300 years ago in 1684, he wrote this, this therefore deserves the severest of our thoughts, the best of our meditations, and our utmost diligence in them. For if our future blessedness shall consist in living where Jesus is, that's heaven, right? If we're going to heaven, which we are, and beholding of his glory, what better preparation can there be for it? than a constant previous contemplation of that glory as revealed in the gospel. That's the Bible. That by a view of it, we may be gradually transformed into the same glory. In other words, read your Bibles. Meditate on your Bibles and experience the glorious Christ. Timberline Church, thank you for joining me in exalting the glorious Christ this morning through God's holy word. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're teaching us about yourself and about Jesus. Jesus, we love you. We worship you and we exalt you today in Jesus' name. Amen.